How we will get Mars rocks to Earth, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. If it was easy, someone would have done it already. It's not. It's really, really hard. But we're now closer than ever to achieving that long-held goal for robotic exploration of the Red Planet. NASA JPL's Richard Cook is the manager of the Mars Sample Return Program. He'll share the current plan, including how two descendants of Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter, may play key roles. Here are a couple of program notes I'll soon be leaving for the Kennedy Space Center, where I'll join the hopeful crowd watching the first launch of the Space Launch System. That biggest ever rocket will boost the Artemis I Orion capsule toward lunar orbit. It's sitting on the pad as I record this with everything looking A-OK for liftoff. Yeah, we really used to say A-OK. Bruce Betts has come up with a humdinger of a space trivia question based on the SLS. You'll get your shot at it in this week's What's Up. While I'm away, you'll get to hear the celebration of the Voyager mission's 45th anniversary. I'll be at JPL when Deputy Project Scientist Linda Spilker and others mark this occasion. You'll hear my coverage in our August 31st show that will also feature another conversation with the great Andrew Ian. Anne and I will talk about the Voyager Interstellar mission and those golden records she helped create. Turning to the downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, means we're also turning back to last week's visit with Jane Greaves, and our conversation about phosphine and the possibility of life in the atmosphere of Venus. Thanks so much to all of you who took up the challenge Jane and I gave you. We've received a bunch of very entertaining and even beautiful artist concepts of those penguins who fly high above Venus. Need I remind you that there is no actual evidence for penguins or any other living organisms there? But reviewing your fanciful artwork has been great fun. We'll have more to say about it next week, and we'll share some of those images. There's much more at planetary.org downlink, including the latest news about Virgin Galactic. Richard Cook has been in the Mars exploration business for more than three decades. He worked on the Pathfinder mission that brought the tiny Sojourner rover to the Red Planet just over 25 years ago. He became project manager for the Mars Exploration Rover's Spirit and Opportunity and did the same for the much more ambitious Curiosity Mars Science Laboratory that is still rolling and doing science. He joined us on stage back in 2012 for a Planetary Radio Live discussion about that mission. You can hear it on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. Richard left his job as JPL's Associate Director for Flight Projects and Mission Success in 2021 to take on Mars Sample Return. As you'll learn in our new conversation, it has been an exciting homecoming. Richard, it's been a long time. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Do we now have a pretty good idea of how those priceless, pristine bits of Mars that Perseverance is collecting are going to make their way back, uh, not back, are going to make their way here to Earth to all those eager scientists who just can't wait to get them in their labs? We do. You know, I mean, we're, we're in the part of the phase where we're, of the project where we're still 
formulating our plans. And so it's not, everything hasn't been approved, but I think we have a good technical concept for how we want to do it now. And, and I think we're ready to move on into making that happen. Let's talk about some of the details of that. I mean, this phase that NASA just talked about, there was a press release put out. It said it's the system requirements review, but are we still in what you're calling the conceptual design phase? We are, right. Officially, we're still waiting for all, as I said, all of the approvals to take place. But we are in the, in broad terms, in the formulation phase of a program, which is broken into sort of two main chunks. One is the concept phase, and the second part is the preliminary design phase. And so we're actually about to go from concept design to preliminary design, and that'll be kind of the next year or so. This is still such an exciting step to actually have seen that press release and seen the artist renderings of the spacecraft that are going to be doing this work for us. I mean, it seems like maybe Perseverance was the first real feeling we got, like this long-held dream, sample return. It's actually started. And now this just seems like the next step along the way. Absolutely. And it's funny because I've worked on, been here 30 years and worked on several Mars sample return concepts or ideas, and, and they just never got past a certain point. And I think we really are are sort of now at the point where we're going into terra incognito, for example, for, you know, on sample return, right, where we, we really haven't made it this far. Uh, and I, of course, we have on other programs. And so we certainly know what that feels like. But it's really refreshing and a, and a great feeling to get the sense that yeah, the momentum is building and we're, we're, we really have a concept that can be executed. Um, and now we just need to start going down that path. So what would that be on Mars? Aries incognito? Yeah, there you I, go. I, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there are some big changes here from what we originally thought would happen. Maybe the biggest one, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that rover that we were hoping to have provided by the European Space Agency for a number of reasons is now no longer part of this plan. Do I have that right? That's right. You know, I think uh, it's a little bit of a confluence of several different events that made that possible. First and foremost, of course, is that Perseverance is, is doing so well on Mars, right? That it really has kind of exceeded, I mean, knock on wood, conceded, exceeded everybody's expectation that, that in terms of how well it's worked, the samples it's gotten have been very compelling so far. The, the vehicle itself is working great. The team is doing a tremendous job. And so it, it really gives you confidence and gives us confidence that, that, that we can count on it to be the principal path, right? We always knew it would be there. We likely would be there. But we really have our confidence has only gone up over time that, that it would be able to be the primary delivery path. So that's one item. The second one, of course, then is, you know, we start talking about, well, do we need a backup? And, and you know, and, and clearly for, for a long time, the Fetch Rover and Perseverance were sort of both able to do the job. But having that second, the Rover, the second Rover, the Fetch Rover, does make the program more complicated, right? It adds another, uh, I mean, it's a very capable vehicle, but it takes up space and it, you know, requires uh, resources on both sides of the Atlantic to, to make it happen. And, and I think given our confidence and perseverance, we said, well, you know, maybe we should look at other options for that. And that's what we've been kind of doing for the last year is, are there other ways to, to 
you know, both get the fetch rover there, but also, you know, fulfill its function, which is to sort of serve as a second path. And in the end, the, again, success of ingenuity on Mars has really opened up the possibility that a, that a helicopter, you know, an aerial-based system could achieve that same retrieval recovery function with a much smaller footprint, you know, much, much um, yeah. more, more straightforward way of, I mean, it's still challenging to accommodate a one meter blade, right? But it, but in general, the, the, the mass of those helicopters is very low. And, and so they are much easier to bring along than, than a fetch rover would be. So no fetch rover, still, of course, a lander, uh, a NASA provided lander, which we can talk about more in a moment. So instead of the fetch rover rolling over to where Perseverance happens to be, or maybe the two meeting in the middle, now Perseverance, you might hope, would will roll over to this lander. Or if for some reason Perseverance can't, you'll have not one, but a couple of helicopters to help carry those, transfer those samples. That's right. Yeah. The, I mean, the, 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 Prime path is exactly what you said. Perseverance will drive literally right up to the to the lander, and the lander, of course, has an arm on it, and the arm will reach out and one at a time pluck the the samples that Perseverance is is carrying on it and take it off, take one each sample tube off one at a time and put it into the what we call the orbiting sample canister, right? The the OS. It's the thing at the front of the map that that is you know our carrier or test tube rack, so to speak, of, of where we put the tubes. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the basic idea is Perseverance is right up, right close to, the, to where the lander will be. The other possibility is exactly what you said, that, that for whatever reason, over the next six, seven years, we decide that Perseverance is not able to keep going or we don't want to gamble that it will continue to survive. Then we can drop all of the sample tubes that it's carrying with it on the ground. Um, and we're in fact, we're going to do that for the first time in probably the October, November time frame where we're going to establish a first sample depot. And this has been the plan all along where we're going to, you know, once we get a certain, once Perseverance gets a certain number of, of high value, interesting samples, it drops a set of them, 10, 12 in that range in a really safe, really benign place. Um, and then it can go on and do the rest of its mission, right? And, and and continue to get more samples. But we know that we have at that point, you know, no matter what happens to Perseverance after that, we know we have these this set of, of uh, pre-deposited sample tubes. If for whatever reason Perseverance were to die six months from now, which we think is, of course, unlikely, very unlikely, um, we could, in fact, send the lander there. And then you're right, the helicopter would go and retrieve the helicopters would go and retrieve those 10, 12 sample tubes and, and bring them back to the map. And that would be it. That would be good. That's that from the scientist's perspective, you know, they wanted to go to Jezero Crater as this most exciting place they could go to on Mars. And you know, they're very clear to us, you know, if you can only bring back those 12 tubes, okay. I mean, that's great. That's good enough. I mean, if you can get more, super, even better, right? But <laughs> But they're definitely, you know, would be willing to, to go with the, the, the pinch with the, the first set of 12 samples. I hadn't had this image in my head before, but of, of Perseverance dropping those samples, almost like laying the world's most precious golden eggs uh, to be retrieved uh, later. You mentioned the MAV, the Mars Ascent, uh, Mars Ascent Vehicle. I'll come back to that in a second. But the first thing I got to mention is, you know, we've been following and talking now and then to members of that team behind Ingenuity. 
they must be justifiably proud to see that the success of their little proof of concept whirlybird is now helping to shape plans for sample return. Absolutely. And and the team of the helicopter team, I mean, you know, there's a there's a whole sort of backstory to to ingenuity and you know, sort of the little helicopter they could, and it was part of this bigger pro I mean it in a lot of ways, it reminds me at least of the Sojourner and Pathfinder era, where yes, it was, it was yeah. sort of a the the, the you know the, the group of people that kind of didn't believe, no one believed in, you know, and they're off in their corner doing their thing, and then in the end, they got this dramatic success, and it really sort of set the stage or laid the groundwork for for future use of mobility, aerial mobility on Mars, and. And sure enough, you know, the first thing out of the gate is, well, hey, we could use this to to retrieve samples. And so some of the people that, you know, the the Bob Ballaram was sort of the one of the engineers here who was sort of the father of the helicopter for of ingenuity, for lack of a better word. You know, he's very much in the in the mix here as saying, hey, that this is where we mm-hmm. go from here. Right. And so it's it really does. It's a testament to the to both ingenuity of the folks involved, but also their <laughs> perseverance, because they're very much. Like we we believe in this technology and we're going to make it useful on Mars for future missions. Ingenuity and perseverance. There you we, go. Those titles exactly. become even more appropriate than when they were chosen uh, years ago. Now, right? Um, uh, you've got this lander, which at least in the artist rendering, I could I thought I could see a little bit of heritage there. Of uh, here's my coffee cup with Insight uh, logo on it. Yep. There you go. Um, I mean, there's some there's some proven technology, right? But I'm also thinking of that MAV, that Mars Ascent Vehicle Rocket, the one that's going to carry the samples up to the waiting Earth Return Orbiter from the European Space Agency. I am trying to imagine a more uh, harrowing step in this process. It seems like seven minutes of terror in reverse. It is, and 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 I think that you know, I mean, I hate to say that we've gotten a little blasé about landing things on Mars, but it is, <laughs> as you said, it's, I mean, it's very similar, very much the same problem, and it and in reverse, and it it you know, I do think that we, I mean, clearly we have technology here on the Earth that we're relying on as a starting place, the propulsion, the thrust vector control, all of the elements, right? But putting it all together and 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 demonstrating it. You know, kind of for the first time on the surface of Mars, right? You know, carrying these, as you said, very precious, precious cargo, right? I mean, we have to be conscious of the fact that that's you know, probably the biggest challenge we have is to is to to make that piece of the program work. It is um, good that we have so many people helping in that regard, right? So it's not like we're just trying to do this, you know, as an experiment. Or it's you know, we got Marshall, we got Lockheed Martin, we're Northrop, we we've got all of the the people who who really understand how to make systems like this work working together with us and i think that gives us confidence that that we got the right approach so that little rocket makes it up into orbit and there it meets tell us about this isa contribution well so that you know one of the things i always laugh about with with these programs or think about is that how many how many kind of amazing things happen that you don't think about you know like in this case well first we have to land this thing then we got to take off and and uh, you know have the map work, but rendezvousing with a with a volleyball sized uh, sample canister with a spacecraft that's the size of a, about a football field. I mean the solar rays on this thing are huge, right? And so wow. it's got to find and then rendezvous with this 
fairly small, basically, I mean, it has a beacon on it, but it, it uh, is, you know, not obviously, it's not a full spacecraft. It's a very simple sort of beacon. And the uh, URO guys have to, to basically find it, close on it, and then get in a position where it can get ingested into the CCRS system, the, the capture and containment system. Um, and so all of that is, is fortunately, there's a lot of similarities between that and rendezvousing with stuff here on the earth. And so there's a lot of mm. technologies and techniques, you know, both to identify it because it's a, you know, you're, you're using optical and RF systems to try to see where, where the MAV, uh, where the OS is. But then the whole closed loop guidance and control of how you rendezvous with something and, and it's all done autonomously. Right. Because there's just yeah. we can't really do a joystick it, you know, upon approach. And so that's a challenging problem. And I think fortunately, the the ERO team, the, the ESA clearly leadership at Airbus um, in Toulouse, th th that's the, the they have a lot of experience, a lot of ability to get access to sensors. You know, the, the Sobaron is, is building the camera and, and the LIDAR is from from Europe as well. And so we. You know, they're really putting their best effort on that part of it because that's so critical to obviously the full success of the program. CCRS, I mentioned, that's the next part. And that's, again, in the next category of you're doing what is, is, uh, is you know, once you get this thing, in this, you know, get it close to where you're ready to, to grab this, the volleyball, then CCRS has to, to ingest it, has to keep it from flying back out, right? So, I mean, you got to keep it captive and then you have to go through a series of on-orbit assembly activities because one of our big, obviously one of the big requirements we have is that we need to make sure that the whole sample canister is contained in not one or two, but basically three successive shells that are there to protect it from all of the re-entry dynamics that we'll see when it comes back to the earth. And so in order to achieve and meet the planetary protection requirements we have to, to ensure that no Mars dust is or Mars samples are potentially on the entry vehicle. We have to go through this this effort to encapsulate multiple times each of those. The OS gets encapsulated two or three times. And then finally, it gets put in the EEV, the Earth, Earth entry vehicle and brought back to the Earth. So that's the that itself is not something we've ever really done either, is an autonomous onboard assembly of multiple uh, hardware elements to, to encapsulate, I mean, to some extent, OSIRIS-REx and, and, and uh, Genesis and Stardust did that, but much, much simpler than what we're talking about doing. You pretty much answered my next question, which was about the sophistication of the robotics and other technologies that are going to be needed to make all of this happen. I mean, really, it makes me think that this is, at least in some ways, the ways you've described, the most sophisticated and audacious attempt of any robotic mission. It is in the sense of the, of the, the need for the encapsulation and the assurance of that encapsulation. The one thing that it doesn't do that, that makes it in some ways comparable to on Perseverance, there's the, there's the other end of the spectrum, which is the sampling system. It's doing a bunch of those same things as well, where it's, you know, getting tubes and doing all that. But it has the challenge of also having to do that within Mars rocks. You got to have a drill. You got to know that it's interacting with Mars materials. So the actually closest analogy we think to CCRS is really the sampling system on, on Perseverance, which was 
a very substantial challenge. Robot inside the robot, exactly. right? I mean, it's, that's right. It's just I, I, and we always tell people find a description of this sample system that's inside Perseverance, and you will be blown away by its right. uh, by its complexity. Yeah, that's but it's working. The most challenging part of Perseverance really is that piece, is that because the rest of it had a lot of heritage from. It's not to make make it seem easy, but it had heritage from from Curiosity or from you know, sky crane system, you know, on curiosity, but, but the really new, new thing on, on perseverance was the sampling system. Fortunately, you know, some of the people that worked on that are now working on CCRS because it's a joint led by Goddard because Goddard has a lot of on-orbit assembly experience from Hubble and other places like that. And so it's, it's, it's marrying them, their history and ours in terms of sample handling and things like that. And so it's, it's turned out to be a great collaboration between the two centers um, to make this this system work. The other big collaboration that we've already mentioned is with the European Space Agency, mm -hmm. which seems to be, I mean, I, I don't know if it was Thomas Zerbuchen or maybe the administrator was talking about, you know, the benefits of a program like this, as so many are nowadays between NASA and agencies around the world, what these kinds of multinational collaborations bring to a project like this. I mean, make, it's made it a lot easier to take this on, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. And the, and the pieces that, I mean, even without the fetch rover, the, the pieces that the Europeans are, are doing, like ERO and the sample transfer arm, we couldn't do this without them. Right. I mean, no. that they, it's a, it's a, those systems are very complex. They require access to you know industrial capabilities that to be honest we're we have but we're also making use of right so we really need to these projects get to be so big and complicated that you you either take 30 years to do them or you got to figure out a way to make use of to get help and to get partners and that presents a challenge because i mean everybody has different cultures and different ways of doing work but i think we've built a really effective sort of teaming relationship with the europeans where I mean, they're totally in and they're very invested in, in making sure that, that they bring it to bear all of the good things they do. They're also, you know, want to learn how we do things and vice versa. Right? I think it's been great experience for us to, to understand how they do projects as well, because it really does make you conclude that there's so much capability out there. If we could all just work together. Right. And this is a great op opportunity to demonstrate that. Yep. If all goes well. What are we looking at? I mean, it looked like maybe the Earth Return Orbiter will be launched before the sample return retrieval lander. And, and if so, why is that? Why is the orbiter going first? Mostly but so that it's pre-positioned there. It takes a little bit longer for it to get there because um, it's, uh, you know, the, the job of going to Mars and coming. This is the first time we've ever sent something to Mars and then brought it back. And hmm. for the just the size of the spacecraft, the amount of fuel you have to take, all results in, in ERO both being very large, but also requiring an electric propulsion system to get it there and to get it back. And so EP systems tend to be, you know, it takes longer to get there because low thrust. So it takes a little bit longer to get there. We want it to be pre-positioned so that it can help with relay uh, to serve as a relay for the lander. When the lander lands, it's got basically a little less than a year to get everything done. And that's a lot of work. And we wanna make sure that the, the relay, and we obviously have relay satellites there now, they're getting a little bit long in the tooth, so to speak. And so we were a little worried that, you know, would they still be there? And so we want ERO to be in a position where it's already there, 
already ready to do the relay uh, function when the lander gets there. The lander, it's interesting, is actually spending more time getting to Mars than it normally would do because we want to have it land at the right time of year. The lander itself is solar powered, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that we could go into, but the, the lander and the helicopter are both solar powered. And so we wanted to land in sort of spring, for lack of a better word, on Mars. Yeah. And so because of that, the, the lander is taking kind of a little bit of a circuitous route to Mars as well. Um, and that's why, even though we're launching in 28, we won't actually get the lander to Mars until 2030. So it takes like a year longer than normal to get there. Then it does the year on the surface, then the MAV launches and ERO catches the, the, the OS. And then at that point, it because again, it's electric propulsion, it has to spiral back out and head back to Mars. And so by the time it spirals out and gets back to the Earth, rather, it's about 2033, late 2033. So 2033 is when we might see, if all goes well, again, that sample return capsule making its way blazing through the sky and uh, being recovered down here on the surface. That's right. And that's when the, that's when all the scientific analysis can begin, right? We're, 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 uh, you know, the, the Perseverance team has done a great job picking a great set of samples and now they're going to have to be patient. The science community is going to have to be patient while we go get them and come back. And then they finally can take a look at them and actually get them in their, their, their labs and, and start looking at them. I clearly don't have to tell you how long this has been the dream, the holy grail, not just for engineers, but for those scientists that you're talking about to get those samples back into the labs with their big hulking equipment. You've been at JPL, as I counted, for about 33 years. That's right. Did you know that there is a page about you on the NASA site that was created while you were still the flight ops manager for Mars Pathfinder? <laughs> I'm not surprised because nothing ever goes away on the internet, so. Yep, yeah. Let me give you a quote from that page. So here it is, this is back when you and I both had a lot more hair. One day I hope I can work on a sample return mission that will bring back a rock for a geologist to look at. There you go. Dream come true? Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's the, I mean, this job really is the culmination of my career. I mean, I've worked on Pathfinder and, and a Curiosity, Spirit and Opportunity. So, you know, I've had several uh, missions here and, and, you know, there were opportunities to go do other things. I worked up in the director's office for a while and did other stuff. But the chance to to actually get to where this, uh, the apex of the whole Mars program for the last 30 years, where we can actually make it happen is just, it's a, such a great opportunity. I just, I, Despite the challenge, everyday challenges, I really cannot say enough about what a great opportunity it is. Richard, I hope that we are still following this, you and I, and, and ready to uh, be part of that joyous reception in 2033 when those uh, bits of Mars come back to or come to Earth. There you go. Me too. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. That's Richard Cook of the Jet Propulsion Lab, manager of the Mars Sample Return Program. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. 
When you become a member of the Planetary Society, you join their mission to increase discoveries in our solar system, to elevate the search for life outside our planet, and decrease the risk of Earth being hit by an asteroid. Co-founded by Carl Sagan and led today by CEO Bill Nye, the Planetary Society exists for those who believe in space exploration to take action together. So join the Planetary Society and boldly go together to build our future. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society is here. Please help me welcome Dr. Bruce Betts. Yay! <sighs> thank you, thank you. Good to be here. Nice to meet with all of you wonderful people. Will you indulge me? I'm going to read a couple of comments. I continue to get these wonderful comments from people about my plans. They'll have more than three months, folks, before uh, before this happens. And I'll, you know, you'll still hear from me now and then. But Stephanie Retrum in Arizona, I'm thankful to Matt for all these years of joy and laughter and gracious humility. What a loss. I wish you all the best in the future. Wednesday is my favorite day because of you. Isn't that nice? Wow. I know. Who you wrote that one, didn't you? No, no. And I didn't pay her, at least not yet. Uh, Vlad, <laughs> <laughs> Vlad Bogdanov in British Columbia. Matt, I'm so terribly sorry to hear of your impending retirement. You and your voice will be immensely missed. In your honor, I will continue my planetary membership in perpetuity until the inevitable heat death of the universe. That's kind of a good news, bad news. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Until entropy wipes us all out. Yeah. Dude, stop uh, bringing me down. Stop be more gracious. Here's one that I think you'll like. Ian Jackson in Australia. I was wondering that if Bruce would take one of his original highly prized McDLT burgers from the freezer, defrost it, open up both components. Would the smell be quite similar to Comet Kiriyamov <laughs> Gerasimenko? <laughs> wow, I think we've got it. Oh, there's definitely a journal publication yeah. in that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I usually just put a clothespin, which is hard to find these days, a clothespin <laughs> on my nose and eat them uh, straight out of the freezer. So I really don't know. <laughs> Except I, I heat up the hot side. Not a dirty snowball, a dirty McDLT. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Was uh, there ever a clean McDLT? I don't know. Good point. What's up? Oh, you get me so frazzled. We got planets across the night. So we've got Saturn up when the sun sets in the east, and then coming up a couple hours later, Jupiter, and in the middle of the night, Mars coming up, and then uh, Venus. Venus is going to be tough, but it's it's trying to hang on for another couple weeks, low in the east in the pre-dawn. A uh, fun thing to look for is Mars, which is coming up, again, kind of middle of the night, but it'll be up in the pre-dawn, is hanging out for the next several days near the star, reddish star Aldebaran in Taurus. So you got red and red, sort of. Uh, Mars is getting brighter and brighter until its closest approach uh, in December. And so it is actually uh, significantly brighter than Aldebaran right now. Check that out. We go on to this week in space history. It was a big week. 1962, Mariner 2 launched to Venus 60 years ago. Voyager 2 had two big weeks, uh, one in 1981, this week in space history, flying by Saturn, and one in 1989, is still the only spacecraft to fly by the Neptune system. 
We move on to I think you uh, you found a unique uh, approach there. So hard these days. That was my impersonation of the SLS rocket doing random space fang. <laughs> let's hope. Let's hope it happens on Monday let's the 29th. Hope. So uh, it's scheduled to launch soon. NASA, uh, most powerful rocket out there when it comes online in a few days, hopefully. Interestingly, it is it is so powerful. How powerful is it? It's so powerful, it can lift more cargo to the moon than the space shuttle could lift to low Earth orbit. Wow. I'm also upset because you took my line, how, how powerful it is. I'm sorry, I got excited. We can re-record it if you want. No, 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 it's quite all right. You did a nice rendering of it, but uh, that is quite amazing. Very much more powerful, at least than the first stage of the Saturn V. It's just, I expect to be knocked over. I hope you're knocked over. Have someone video that. You want to watch. <laughs> yeah. All right, let us go on to the trivia contest. And as usual, there is something complicated that I hadn't considered brought up by one of our listeners. But let's uh, start out with the question. I asked you, what spacecraft first lifted off the surface of another world beyond Earth? And I know kind of how we did, Matt, but tell us more. I will. As you know, about half, maybe more, of the uh, entries that we got this time said Apollo 11. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> Bob Klain in Arizona. He's not our winner. Sorry, Bob. Oh, Bruce, you are a tricky man and a mad scientist. <laughs> Everyone is going to <laughs> Apollo 11's eagle. Nope. It was Surveyor 6. It used its liquid-fueled vernier engines to lift itself from its original landing site to a position 10 feet away. Little hop. He says, would that make Surveyor 6 an honorary pioneer? It didn't ranger about the surface like Curiosity. It jumped more like a space flea. Uh, and then before, <laughs> before you comment, John Guyton in Australia, Trixie Hobbits. Trixie Hobbits. Yeah, that would be more like it. That'd be more like it. <laughs> yeah, is, Are they right? I mean, was that what you were looking for? That is exactly what I was looking for. The, the Surveyor uh, 6, they did uh, tests to, to lift off and land again, and they did it successfully. We also got this entry from Stephen Sauerwein in Idaho about Surveyor 3, which apparently inadvertently lifted off the moon twice due to its uh, engines not shutting down properly on landing. Now, to me, that's just a rough first landing. That's just, it just bounced a little bit trying to get down the first time. Do you disagree? I am neutral. I would have awarded it to him, and it's taught me something, so thank you. But no, it's certainly, if I knew about it, I would have said intentional liftoff. But in any case, I, my understanding is that did not come up as a conflict in, uh, in the random.org choice, but it is an interesting tidbit. Uh, yeah, rough landing. We've, uh, we've all had some of those. <laughs> Indeed. Your understanding is correct, sir. Our winner he is a longtime listener, uh, Torsten Zimmer in Germany. It's been three and a half years since he won one of these that was decided by random.org. He actually did won one of our sort of skill-based ones a couple of years ago. But, but still, Torsten, congratulations. You are going to get that copy of the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space 
by Stephen Walker. It's a story of Yuri Gagarin. We can give that away. It's a, it's a, a quite a story. It has uh, great uh, illustrations, photos uh, included in the book. Uh, have fun reading it. Excellent. Would you like a question for the future? Uh, yeah. What the heck? Coming back to SLS. Listen carefully. As scheduled, as planned, on the first four SLS missions, first four flights of that rocket, how many of the main engines have already flown as part of a rocket launch, albeit prior to adaptations made for SLS? So there are other gizmos hooked up, but how many of them, of the main engines, how many of them flew before? Figure that one out and uh, head to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. Across all four. Across all four. Otherwise, it would just be trivially easy. Yeah. I'm kidding. But no, across all four. Start your work, folks. Start your engines. You've got until August 31st, Wednesday, August 31st at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here is the prize because we have these great books that uh, we can still award. This is Totality by our friend Jeff Bennett. Uh, it is what it sounds like. It's a book about total eclipses. It's really well done. He did a great job with this. It's uh, almost, it's a little thin to be a coffee table book, but it's that kind of format. Lots of great illustrations. We will send it along to the winner with Jeff's compliments. And I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about the concept of reusing your car engines in the next car that you drive. Thank you, and good night. Well, the first motorized vehicle that I owned was a Honda 175, 175 cubic centimeter engine. I think it might be a little bit underpowered for, uh, how many of those would you have to put in the SLS to get it to the moon? A lot. <laughs> yeah, you, you went a different direction with reusing car motors and rockets. It's oh, cars, cars. I get cars. it. Cars, yeah. yeah. He's Bruce Betts, the uh, chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who would know better to make a, than to make a mistake like that when he joins us here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its Martian members. You Earthlings are also invited to become one of us at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.